Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Own Your Fertility podcast. I am just like, oh my gosh, I couldn't sleep last night. I have Ayla Cuenca here, a holistic birth educator. And I first heard Ayla speak on the Health Freedom for Humanity podcast, and I was just gripping onto every single one of her words. It was so good. And even though I know, you know, quite a bit about holistic birth and natural birth, I know that there's a lot that I still don't know. And I know that our audience, there's a lot that we still don't know. So I'm just really excited to have Ayla here. Ayla, why don't you just tell a little bit about yourself, how you got into this profession, and then we'll go from there. Sure. <clears throat> Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, so I started doing birth work about eight years ago, uh, primarily working as a birth photographer. So I had studied anthropology and photography and had been working in commercial photography for many years after college. And then I started photographing birth and very quickly, um, it was kind of like a homecoming for me. I realized this is the work that I want to be doing, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, so I trained to become a doula and I started holding space for women um, during their birth and their pregnancy and their postpartum. Um, and then I became a birth educator and started teaching primarily. And so now I'm primarily teaching and I'm offering one-on-one um, -on -one coaching, group coaching um, for women who are in their preconception phase, but mostly in their pregnancy. You know, sometimes we wanna, we wanna plan ahead and we wanna get into that space. Um, so, and then sometimes I work just in postpartum with women have kind of come to this understanding of wanting to expand their knowledge after the birth, then we'll walk down that path together. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so ultimately I, I am a holistic birth guide. Wherever you wanna go, we can go, um, you know, just to take you on a path of self-empowerment and discovery. Oh, that's so beautiful. And so I know a lot of my listeners are already dipping their toe into the holistic world and are probably just like, yes, sign me up. But most of your clients, most of the women that work with you, are they first time moms or everyone? You know, I'd say maybe 60% are first time moms and then the rest are second, third, fourth, you know, mm, time pregnancies. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the reasons where, you know, the second, third time moms are coming to you wanting a different, are they wanting just a different birth experience? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes, I mean, often um, a woman has her baby and of course she's in bliss. She's a mother now. However, there are still some things that don't feel quite resolved about the experience. And they might say things like, yeah, I didn't love being pregnant or I didn't love my birth or the birth was not the way I planned. Right. And so in that awareness, they may become pregnant again and want it to look differently the second time around. And so it's a really beautiful opportunity to do what I call like a redemptive birth where like maybe you had all the interventions done to you the first time and you know that that is not the way you would have wanted to have it. So this time around you take classes, you might hire a doula, you might recruit different type of support and you really design the birth to be the way that you want it to be in the pregnancy. Mm. So I, I get a lot of women like that and it's beautiful because they're ready to transform. Yeah, they have so much, they have so much motiv motivating them to want it to be different and to almost heal yeah. that experience going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know just, just for myself, um, having a pretty normal, natural birth, no interventions except for IVI, which we'll or IV, which we'll talk about here in a minute. 
but it still wasn't an experience I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had, I, it was nurse midwives in a uh, birth center, mm-hmm. but it was still very much people coming in and out, no one really looking me in the eye, no one really holding my hand, no one coaching me. I just felt like I was isolated and mm-hmm. alone and no one really understanding like what was going on. My birth progressed very, very quickly. Mm. It took about three hours and baby was here. And in that time, I mean, I was, I was geared up for a 12 hour you know, labor. That's what I've been told. That's what's normal for, especially for first time moms. And so I got about two and a half hours in, I looked at my husband, I'm like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no way. Like I signed up for the marathon, not the sprint. I don't know what's going on. No one was there telling me what was going on. And turns out I was transitioning and um, that's why everything felt like so insurmountable. But even, even then I feel like there's still some resistance of, Oh, I don't know if I want to go through that again. Like mm-hmm. there's some, there's still some, what I call womb trauma there that, mm-hmm. you know, still hasn't been addressed. So I was just waiting to dig into that. But I know so many women who come into my program, they have womb trauma like that from mm-hmm. previous, um, previous births, previous pregnancies, complications, but also just what they've heard, the mm-hmm. fear mongering from yeah. doctors, friends, family. Yeah especially when they want to pursue natural birth. But let's really talk about that. I mean, that's the industry norm, right? Home births are unsafe. They're risky and you need to be in a hospital. Anything could go wrong. Something will probably go wrong, right? That's the narrative. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to touch quickly on what you said is that so many women wish for a sprint than a marathon for their birth. And I will tell you the sprint, the quick labor has its own set of challenges. I agree. agree. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I commend you. Um, Okay. So yeah, what happens now, and this has been designed this way. I'll just say it like that. It's been designed this way. It's like an amazing marketing machine (laughs) to convince women that when they become pregnant, it's pathological. And what is reinforcing this idea is Hollywood, because that's primarily how we get our birth education is through watching films. So we have Hollywood, right? The woman screaming, going, rushing to the hospital in the taxi, getting to the hospital, getting her epidural, and then everything is fine, but she still needs to be monitored because it's risky, because it's dangerous, whatever it is. So we have that very generally speaking. And then we also have stories from friends and family, you know, that have had their own varied experiences based on their Hollywood education. So we're very, very far removed from what is normal physiological birth. Um, And when I say design this way, I mean that because when we started birthing in hospitals, it was really a push from pharmaceutical companies to get as many women into hospitals to birth as they could. It's really, if you look at it, it's like this beautiful cash cow because women are giving birth every single day. And how amazing would it be if we could make thousands of dollars just by placing her within our four walls and convincing her that she needs X, Y, and Z to birth safely? Because every woman, their pain point is they want the baby to be safe right? That's like, as a mother, that is their ultimate goal is having a safe, healthy baby, you know, experience and baby. So they found a way to play on the pain point and then make it seem like it was an essential part of this process for a woman to be in a hospital. 
However, mortality rates for babies and women are not significantly better since we've been birthing in hospitals. That being said, only 1% of women in America give birth out of hospital. So it's, it's really like where women are birthing. And I know that there's this really big push for women to have their natural quote unquote human birth where <laughs> we say human because it's like compassionate human birth, right? Where the woman feels held, supported. She's not being quote abused or taken advantage of or violated. So we've tried to convince ourselves that we can have this peaceful, empowered, embodied experience in the hospital. And as you just stated, <laughs> you did avoid all the interventions. However, there is still something about it that didn't feel quite right to you. And you're in the process of exploring that. Absolutely you know? right. So, you know, like I said, we, we didn't start birthing in hospitals. We were talking about this earlier, you and I, we didn't start birthing in hospitals until really the 1940s. That was when we made the big switch over. Before that, very few women were working with male obstetricians or doctors, mm -hmm. physicians um, to do home births. And then we started realizing like, oh, we could make money off of women. Um, we could, and then, you know, there of course was a public health crisis where women were going home and then sustaining infections. But that had a lot to do with poor living conditions, close living quarters, no um, sewage, you know, no, no running water, no way of sanitizing. So there were, there were a lot of factors that had nothing to do with birth and everything to do with the way that we were living. But because women were so vulnerable and susceptible postpartum, we automatically assumed that women were dying because they were birthing at home. Right. That wasn't the case. It was simply lack of resources. Yeah, and possibly it, nutritional factors too. Nutritional factors as well. I mean, this was happening at a time, especially like in England, where we were eating horrible diets. I mean, processed foods, sugars, breads, cereals, Kellogg's was blowing up. You know, it was just we were not eating nourishing foods. Women already had four or five kids at home. There was no running water. There was no proper sewage. Uh, you know, it was just a mess. And so we, we had this idea that if we were going to be birthing in hospitals, it was going to be safer, but that didn't actually improve a lot of the outcomes. Uh, what did change is that midwives, you know, started washing their hands in between things. They started realizing that they could sanitize by boiling things afterwards. Uh, you know, bandages were being dressed differently. So it's like some improvements were made, um, but that's really what was keeping home birth kind of like in under this umbrella of not being safe. Well, yeah, and we were talking about this history of birth in America. And I remember when I was researching this myself, I was just, you know, just kind of struck in the face. Like it hasn't always been this way, right? And I'd love for you to speak about, you know, how how birth was handled before, right? We touched a little bit upon that, but when did this Western medical model take over? And this was this was the new norm. This was how things were supposed to be. Yeah. So you know, when, when the medical, like when medical schools were being established in the U S um, there was a lot of resistance because there were midwives here and there were a lot of quote medical healers. There were healers yes. from different modalities, different backgrounds that were, that everyone in the community would go to for whatever ailment. And so when these doctors were coming over from Europe, wanting to practice in the US and wanting to have some sort of like established organization where they had the final word and they had the authority, they were heading up 
they're heading up towards a lot of resistance. And so what they did basically is it was like each, each branch, if you want to call it of medicine, if you want to call it that, started self-appointing committees and groups. And one of those was ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So it was really a self-appointed group of men that were like, well, if we band together and we have enough funding and we have enough backing, we eventually will be the governing body and we will be able to work really closely with government and control legislation. And that's and then we're going to run it. And of course, pharma, you know, which was developing in that time, could back that. And they were really helping each other sustain financially. And all of the schools that were following this like Rockefeller agenda basically were the ones that were receiving the endowments and the funding. And if you were a medical school that was kind of like lower on the totem pole and you were not going to abide by the Rockefeller model, you were not going to receive the funding and you would basically just get phased out. Mm. Um, you know, and that's a whole other line of inquiry <laughs> to go down. So, yeah, so ACOG and who makes all the rules about birth now, historically, it was just a group of men that they're self-appointed. Nobody voted them in. It wasn't crowdsourced. Nobody said, wow, all of you have this amazing knowledge. You understand birth. You understand the female body. You understand this process. We really want you to be in charge and make the rules. They were basically we assume, right? We assume that, oh, all of these, all of these governing bodies, they really have appointed the absolute best in their position to, you know, everything that comes down the pipeline is of course coming from really trusted, um, evidence-based proof and data. And it's for the the good of the woman and the baby, right? The safety of the baby. But that really isn't, I mean, there's really, when you dive into a lot of these protocols and procedures, not only is there no scientific evidence, but there's evidence against it mm-hmm. that it's actually worse off for mm-hmm. the woman and the baby. Yeah. yeah. And that mm-hmm. would make sense because we are self-appointed bodies and we're linking arms with big pharma government. So it's best for them, mm-hmm. not best for us, but they've got this great story of keeping the, you want the baby safe, right? You want to keep that baby yeah. safe, right? It's and like that's... this really weird haunting phrase that you hear often in the hospital. And I've heard it so many times when I'm at births in the hospital. And it's like, we want to do this. We're going to do this. And the woman's like, well, can you explain it to me a little more? Mm-hmm. And they won't even give an explanation. They'll just say, safe mother, safe baby. Mm-hmm. Don't you want your baby to be safe? And it's just like I said, it's haunting because it's like, well, yeah, of course I do. But I, I would also <laughs> like to understand what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, what are the pros and cons, the risks, the benefits, et cetera. You know, they want, women naturally want to practice informed consent. And then they're not given that platform. They're not given that opportunity because then they're just, they're, they're treated like a nuisance or a bother for mm-hmm. wanting to know more about what's happening to their body. Absolutely. And if it's not just, you know, it's, don't you want your baby to be safe? It's, we're going to jump straight to the worst case scenario and tell you that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, anyone sitting there vulnerable in the moment is going, you know, doesn't have enough time, maybe doesn't have enough empowerment to practice that informed consent to really stand up for herself. Of course, she's going to say, okay, yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Do what you need to do. Yeah. Right. At, so what, at, at whatever cost. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So, so what is this standard birth process, right? A healthy 
pregnant woman, really no complications up until this point, right? She starts to go into labor, she enters into the hospital, really hasn't, you know, researched much into the process, just knows it's probably going to be painful. Um, no, no doulas or midwives there. She's really just going through, you know, her OB and the nurses mm -hmm. at the hospital. What is that standard protocol? Well, I, I do want to backtrack just a little bit to, to start with, the, to give context for how we get to that standard once we arrive in the hospital. So just when we find out we're pregnant, we automatically go into this energy of it being pathological. And we need to go as soon as possible to an OB to get blood work done, make sure, get an ultrasound, make sure everything looks good, whatever that means to someone, make sure everything looks good. And then from there, we'll, we're gonna subsequently schedule ultrasounds and prenatal visits and more blood testing and genetic testing and this and this and this and this. So we're coming from this place already where we are ill and we need to be heavily monitored to make sure that nothing goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's the energy we're coming from. And then we get to the hospital, right? We go into labor and usually women who have no education, which is most women, no education surrounding birth or the process. And it's not their fault. They simply don't know that this is a place they have so much power. This is a place you might have the most power <laughs> as a woman. And so they don't know. So they show up saying, well, I had some sensations. I was contracting. I just came straight to the hospital. And sometimes they get sent home because it's too early and they don't even know. So if you're actually in active labor and you arrive at the hospital, they'll want to, you know, you'll do all the check-in process, right? You can do your, your pre-registration and all of that, but you're still going to have to sign paperwork. You have to sign a bunch of releases. Um, you'll have the anesthesiologist come and visit you, you know, they'll look in your mouth and you'll say, well, no, no, I'm not getting an epidural. I don't want any drugs. You don't have to be here. And they're like, no, I need to make sure in the event that you go into an emergency C-section, I already need to know that you are a good candidate for an epidural or for general anesthesia. So every woman is going to have her meeting with the anesthesiologist. So already you're like, wait, what do you mean in the event of an emergency C-section? <laughs> what? Planting that okay. seed. Planting that seed. And then you get hooked up to your IV so that you can stay, quote, hydrated and nourished during the labor because you're not allowed to eat or consume liquids. You could chew ice. You can't drink water. Um, and then from there, you'll be offered an epidural. Uh, typically, women plan to do that because they think that that's what you're supposed to do when you arrive at the hospital and they're uncomfortable. Their partners have no idea how to support them or really what to do. Partners are usually on the phone. They get on the couch. They turn on Netflix and they're just like, right, you get your epidural. You lie there. This is a waiting game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then labor slows down because she got the epidural. And then she gets some Pitocin, which is um, a synthetic form of oxytocin to speed up the contractions and kind of bring them back up to where they were before she got the epidural. Pitocin, unfortunately, really stresses out the baby's heart tones. It's you, I mean, most of the time it will. Sometimes, rarely, it doesn't affect the baby negatively immediately. But in that moment, the baby's heart tones might start looking really strange and that raises red flags for the woman. She gets scared, her blood pressure goes up. And then next thing you know, a C-section is being suggested because the baby's in distress, yeah. right? So then she can go, she might go into a C-section and they go into this place, the state of mind where, thank God we were at the hospital. 
-hmm. We had an emergency. The baby was not okay. Birth is dangerous. See, I told you, birth is dangerous. (laughs) Thank God we were here. They saved us. And then they go into postpartum, right? So they have the baby. They're typically separated from the baby after a C-section for at least one to two hours because the woman needs to go into post-op and recovery. Um, A series of things are done to the baby without the mother's consent or without her knowing really because it's just a standard of care, you know, get the hepatitis, give the hepatitis B vaccine to the baby, give the baby the vitamin K shot, do the bath, do the antibiotic eye ointment, uh, sometimes circumcision, if it's, if it's the standard of care in their neonatal units. Um, and parents don't know, they don't know that they can say, Hey, I actually, I'm going to decline the bath, or we're going to do the hep B shot at a later date or we're not going to do the head shot or whatever it is your preferences are. Parents don't even know that they can request anything different than the standard of what the hospital is offering. So when all is said and done, the woman's back in her room and uh, the maternity wing, you know, not in labor and delivery, but now she's in postpartum and she has no idea what just happened to her. I mean, typically women are in shock. Um, they eventually they get home. Maybe they have support at home. Maybe they don't. Um, the stress of it all can be very difficult for them to eventually breastfeed. So then they don't end up breastfeeding. And then they start to feel a lot of guilt (laughs) around not breastfeeding and failing. So the birth didn't go the way they wanted. Breastfeeding didn't go the way they wanted. And then they're back at work in six weeks. And who the heck wants to do that again? Mm. Oh my gosh. (laughs) My skin is just so like crawly right now because um, it's, it's one of the reasons like why I do what I do is just with all the preconception is it really does take, it takes months to start to rewrite these beliefs and almost to empower women to empowering is not just, you know, handing over power. You have to almost show them how powerful they are through proof yeah. and you know, they'll keep questioning it, keep questioning it. And, you know, when my women do get pregnant, it's very much like, oh, should I go this? Should I go that? Should I, should I go get that test? Should I do this? Should I do that? And it's like, let's just sit back for a second. Let's get the test and let's play this out. You get the test, you know this, or you know that, right? It's positive or it's negative. Is this going to change any of your decisions going forward? Yes or no? No. Okay. Then, so why do we need the test? Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, play this little game with them so that they can start practicing their own power and their own decision-making and start practicing their informed consent and also standing up for themselves because we've all been trained that this, you know, white coat is authoritative and we don't have a say in anything. We don't know our bodies. They know our bodies. Yes. Our body always breaks down. It's mm-hmm. unsafe, but they are going to protect us. Trust the expert. So, you know, that starts in the fertility journey. A lot of women coming in, just going through the IUIs and the IVFs and then realizing, oh, I've been wronged. It really wasn't for me. I wasn't supported. So sometimes they already have that inkling of, oh, I need to question, right? I don't want that in my birth either. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, like those first time moms, it is, it's just go right in. I don't question anything. I go through all of this and there's a lot of trauma there. 
and there's a lot of disconnect in in mothering our child and it's just something that is not really based off of any scientific evidence you know if you look through like let's just talk about the iv for example can you yeah. go into let's just kind of break down these um these interventions and why they're doing them and how someone could question this you know what what might be the pros of questioning this and not doing it yeah, so the IV is like what I said to you is, is what I call the gateway drug in birth. <laughs> so it's typically the first thing that's done to a woman when she arrives in the hospital. Um, <clears throat> and the idea here, you know, we started this practice during the knock them out, drag them out era of birth, uh, which is when you'd knock the mother out, drag the baby out. Uh, that's what Dr. Bradley called it. And they would put women on IVs because I, women would be on, under general anesthesia. And so women could not eat when they went under general anesthesia because they could aspirate on undigested food. They could choke, they could die. Um, and general anesthesia was like the drug of choice for pain relief in childbirth uh, at the beginning of last century. Mm. And so it just became you know, common practice that like you don't eat when you're in labor in the event that you take general anesthesia um, or the event that you go into surgery. And so that's just what women do. That's just what they get done when they arrive at the hospital. But what this does like subconsciously, psychologically, spiritually to a woman, when she sees her arm or her hand with a hip lock and hooked up to an IV, there's already this indication that she's ill, she's being managed. There's some, there's some deficit there that's being remedied by this system and by this matrix of the birthing room in the hospital. So already there's that factor. And then secondly, um, it interferes with the biofeedback loop of the hormones in the body. So it can actually interrupt labor, having this excessive amount of fluids, right? And women, each woman individually metabolizes this IV differently. Some women, it's fine. <laughs> Most women, they get swelling, they get edema, which is like really swollen ankles, feet, legs, arms, wrists their blood pressure can go up from the excessive IV fluids. They could actually drown. It could actually fill the lungs, <laughs> this amount of fluid. So it is something that I ask women to heavily consider. You know, when they take my classes, I say like, what are the pros and cons of this? What are ways that you can hydrate and keep your blood sugar regulated without an IV? Oh, okay, you could drink coconut water. <laughs> you could drink electrolytes. You could hydrate on your own during labor. If, you, if you're low risk and if you're not planning to do any other interventions, there is no need for you to go into general anesthesia during this process. So why do you need this IV? A lot of them just say, well, my doctor said I had to, or the nurse you know, really wanted me to, or the nurse said I had to do it. So I'm just here to say, you don't have to do anything. If you refuse something, you sign an against medical advice form, it's called an AMA. You're not going to be kicked out of the hospital. You're not going to be told to leave. You're not, you know, it, they're not going to refuse care. And then some people just don't want, you know, we have this good girl syndrome. We don't want the nurses to dislike us. We don't want the doctor to dislike us. Well, I'm here to say, you're never going to see these people again. You're definitely not going to see the nurses again. And you might not never, you might not ever see your doctor again. <laughs> so you're not going to go home and find them sitting on your living room couch. They, they're not in your family. They're not in your friend group. It doesn't matter. So you really have to do what you want to do. 
And if they say, well, you could endanger your baby if you don't get the IV, just ask for the evidence. What is the evidence for that? Right. And it's usually not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they're, they're coming up with um, responses that have nothing to do with the actual argument. It's yeah. just undercutting again, maybe your character or you don't know, or we've been doing mm -hmm. this longer or the gaslighting. Like, yeah, yeah, it's the gaslighting. Um, I would love to talk about the induction a little bit because there's a lot of fear around a lot of ways to argument for induction coming from the doctor point of view, right? Sure. So a couple of things that um, I know to be true is, you know, obviously it's the post-term pregnancy, right? Anything over 41 weeks, you know, oh, the baby's getting too big or mm. um, what were some of the other reasons why post 41 weeks is not okay? One of the reasons they give is that the placenta gets quote old. Yes. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, or, you know, the other reason is via ultrasound, right? You're not even uh, post-term, but the baby's getting too big. Right. Right. To induce early right. and ultrasounds can be very inaccurate in determining size. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's a 70% margin of error with um, yeah. determining weight in ultrasound through ultrasound. Yeah. Um, risk of infection after the amniotic sac ruptures, right? Mm -hmm. So they're mm -hmm. saying, oh, it's, it's ruptured, you know, for 24 hours, we need, you know, there's a risk of infection we need to induce. Yeah. Um, or that, you know, you're laboring longer than 12 hours without quote unquote progression. Right. Yeah, what are some reasons labor. why a woman might not progress <laughs> in the hospital? <laughs> I, okay, so I want everyone to imagine where you feel the safest or most comfortable orgasming having sex. Mm -hmm. Is it in a hospital room full of strangers you've never met? Especially now masked, you can't even see their full face. Right. Or is it in your home, <laughs> in your bedroom, in your bathroom, right? So that in itself does not allow a woman to fully drop in and surrender. Mm -hmm. She feels exposed, right? So on a cerebral level, she may, she may um, logically, it, it might make sense that this is the safest place to be, but what is her animal body telling her? So women will, will unconsciously ignore everything their animal body is telling them and allow the cerebral, what I call the cerebral override to dictate their birth. And then there's, and then they're wondering why they're not progressing. Some women are laboring beautifully at home and then they get to the hospital and everything stalls. And they're like, I don't understand. So unfortunately for the people who allow cerebral to dictate their experience, mm -hmm. I'm here to say that birth is an animal body experience. Mm -hmm. So you have to do what's going to support that. If you want to progress, you know, some women will progress really quickly. It doesn't matter where they are, their body's on a mission. They could be in the car. It doesn't matter. But most of us really require that sense of safety and surrender to really open and fully relax. So that's one of the reasons labor might not progress in the hospital. Other reasons are getting the IV. Like I said, it can slow your labor down, uh, getting an epidural. You're lying down on your back or on your side for six hours. You're not going to make a lot of progress because labor is an active upright activity. 
So women need to be walking around, uh, using that upright position to help the baby descend and engage. Um, and so when women are lying on their backs, you know, sleeping with an epidural, often they don't progress. And so then they're going to want to give Pitocin, which is the drug they use for the induction. Um, Dr. Caldera Barcia, who's the doctor, um, he's an Uruguayan doctor, and he was the one that invented the fetal heart monitor, the external straps that all of the women wear. He is the doctor that invented it about 60 years ago. And he always said that Pitocin is the most abused drug in the entire world. And this was, you know, this is really close to home for him because he watched babies' heart tones for a living. That's what he did. He designed this monitor that's used everywhere now. And, um, and he noticed, he's like, unless it is some sort of emergency, you know, life-threatening, which is really hard to think of because typically if it's life-threatening, we're doing a C-section, but there's really some sort of medical necessity for Pitocin. That's the only reason it should be used, right? A woman is hemorrhaging after birth. She needs Pitocin, but it's not a way to get babies out. You know, if the mother has type two diabetes, it is typically recommended that she do an induction around 37 weeks to get the baby out. That might be a real medical reason to get the baby out because after 37 weeks, her, the way that her insulin is regulated, it starts to affect the baby. And so that's why they suggest it. But now you're getting all sorts of reasons for induction. Oh, you're old, you're older than 35. So you're, you have a geriatric pregnancy and that just puts you at higher risk for birthing. You're like, okay, does it make sense? Or, um, or, or if you've, if you're an IVF, if it's an IVF baby, or if it's some kind of fertility treatment baby, yeah. it's like you're, you're high risk at that point. And so, and so they think that going full term creates more risk, but it doesn't, you're actually creating more risk for mm. yourself and for your baby. If you're getting them out of the womb before they're fully developed mm. and yeah, the, the lungs are the last thing to fully develop in a baby at the end of the pregnancy, there's like this growth spurt at the very end with the lungs. And then babies are being taken out before lungs are fully developed. And then they need support breathing after the, the mother's been induced and the baby's born. Um, you know, it's really not something to take lightly. Mm-hmm. And people say, you know, my doctor said I have to go in. He's not going to let me go past 41 mm-hmm. weeks. Right. Right. And I'm like, let you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're paying him. So. I think, you know, it's definitely, if it's something that's recommended or suggested to you, you know, if anyone, whoever's listening to this, I would always get a second opinion. And then even a third opinion, I would actually, if you're working with OBs, I would just set up a consultation with a midwife, uh, not a medwife, not a nurse midwife. I would speak to a home birth midwife just to get a radically different perspective on induction. And even if you decide to stay with your OB, it's not about switching care. It's really just about getting a a more holistic picture, holistic, not meaning natural, meaning full picture um, of the interdisciplinary. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Liberal arts. (laughs) What about some of these like more subtle things um, like sweeping the membrane, um, episiotomies, um, that cord clamping that happens right away. Oh my God. Episiotomies are subtle. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and by subtle, I suppose I meant more like under the cover, uh, like undercover, totally, like, totally. oh, I'm down there yeah. for a cervical check. Let me just quickly sweep your membrane or totally. let me, oh I'm down here, you know, baby's coming out. Let me just do an episiotomy. So these things yeah, where yeah. like, we are totally, have no idea, like we are, we're totally in the moment, but not where the doctor is at. And the doctor is doing something to us without yeah. our informed consent. It happens a lot. I mean, one of the most common things is like, even if a woman is on an epidural and she can't feel it, they'll, a nurse will just come in, lift up the gown and stick her hands inside of the woman's vaginal canal to do a vaginal exam. So you might not feel it, but you know that she's down there. She didn't ask you. She didn't give you any warning. And even though you can't feel it, your body does feel it. And there is a memory there. Okay. So there are a lot of violations that happen. Like you said, kind of undercover subtly. Uh, sometimes a woman is pushing, she's crowning and the doctor just suddenly decides mm, because I need to get some forceps into the birth canal. I'm just going to cut her, her labia, or I'm going to cut her perineum and I'm going to get the forceps in and I'm going to pull the baby out. And I don't need to talk to her about it because I'm the attending physician and I know what's best and I know what's going to happen more efficient, how it's going to happen more efficiently. And I'm the one who ultimately decides, you know, how we keep this the safest. Yeah. I'm not going to go into decision-making with my patient right now because, you know, we're under the gun or whatever. Yeah. So these things can happen really quickly and women don't know until later, like, oh, I have stitching. Oh, I had an episiotomy. Oh, I wasn't this has happened to so many of my clients. Episiotomies are total genital mutilation. Um, so yeah, those are some of the things that can go down the membrane sweeps. You know, it's like a way where they, you know, they do a vaginal exam and they kind of go in there a little bit more um, aggressively and they manipulate the bottom of the amniotic sac and, you know, it's uncomfortable. Um, you know, they try to open up the cervix manually mm -hmm. and they'll see it, you know, they'll, they'll try to kind of what they call naturally inducing labor. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that'll rupture the bag of waters. And then a woman has her, her waters broken and now she's on the clock and she doesn't even have a dilated cervix. She's not mm -hmm. even in labor. And now suddenly her baby's compromised. Mm. Yeah. That's just... <laughs> really horrifying to be honest um now what about natural tearing um mm -hmm. speaking for myself here um yeah me too <laughs> I, I i clamp down and i push that baby out way faster than <laughs> to come out um but so i tore pretty bad i want to say third degree okay and so it was we need to stitch you up afterwards we need mm -hmm. to and at that point i'm like of you know of course yeah um more painful than the birth itself <laughs> yeah of course Laying there, you know holding my baby and all I want to do is nurse her and be with her and my legs are like being you know separated open yeah. and stitched up so is is that something that could heal on its own in the right way depends on the tear so I was at a birth yesterday morning and she had a very slight tear on her labia and the midwife basically said, I could stitch this or not up to you, but it's going to heal just fine in a few days. And she said, well, I'll just, let's just go ahead and stitch it. You know? So the client made the decision on her own. 
Um, there are some, you know, there's, like I said, medwife, there's a nurse midwife who I've worked with before. And, you know, she'll, she'll just start, like if she sees any kind of tear, as soon as the baby's out, she starts doing the, the suturing. And I'm like, wait, the placenta hasn't even come out yet. <laughs> like she's already, you know, acting really quickly, doesn't even ask. Mm. Um, so yeah, some tears can heal naturally, you know, but a third degree tear, it, it could have healed on its own. However, you're a little bit more risk of infection just because you have this like open space. Um, and you would have to be really conscious of no walking. You basically stay like a mermaid and continue to clean out the wound, which you would do if you had the suturing anyway. Um, I want to ask you, did you, do you remember feeling the tear happen? No. Yeah. So I'm so glad you said that. Cause I also tore, uh, toward my perineum second degree, but you know, whatever. Um, and I didn't feel it and no one believes me when I say that but it's proof you're saying it now you're corroborating when we are pushing, we have such a surge of hormones and the, the circulation to our perineum and our labia is actually cut off because of the pressure from the baby's head. So it's natural pain relief. Amazing. So, I mean, you could, you sometimes episiotomies are done. They're called pressure episiotomies where the baby's head is actually crowning and the whole area around the, the labia is white because there's no that blood flow sense. there. And they'll just cut an episiotomy. You wouldn't even feel mm. it. So women are really concerned about tearing, but you don't feel it. No. What, what's uncomfortable? <laughs> you don't. So a lot don't more going worry. on then. <laughs> don't worry about tearing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say what set me up for the, the tearing would be, um, it's just really like, I had one of those, you know, I'm, I'm screaming, clenching my, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my, you know, nurse midwife's hands. And, you know, she's saying, push, push, push. Right. There's Mm. like, no, okay, let's Mm -hmm. take a break. You're doing great. And so I'm just like, okay, I mean, I, this is go to, I've got to push and give it all you got. (laughs) And as soon as she told me, no, you need to like bear down, not arch your back. Boom. Just second push. She came mm-hmm. right out. And so of course, yeah, there was a lot of tearing that, that happened, but I can only imagine, right. Mm-hmm. When you like these tissues are meant to, they're meant to transform, right. They're meant to stretch. They're meant to allow right. this to happen. And so in that situation, like how, how long is a typical, like pushing I know it's, it's just so dependent, but yeah, it certainly isn't 20 minutes or whatever I was doing. <laughs> it's so pushing is, so we, we go through our active stage, first stage labor, which is, you know, it's early first stage, middle first stage, then active first stage. And then we go into transition, which is when all the hormones shift and we, and then we go into the pushing. So you feel, you know, women will vomit, women will start shaking. It's all the hormones. And that transition period never really lasts longer than like five to 30 minutes, depending on the woman and how apt she is to surrender. And then she'll start noticing that her contractions are now shifting into more expulsive contractions where she's, you'll even hear her. If she's not medicated, you can hear a woman kind of her breathing will change and she'll start kind of bearing down the way that you would having a bowel movement and you're trying to get something out of your body. And so if women are in a position where they're upright or they're standing, squatting, even on hands and knees, I would say that pushing tends to be shorter. If a woman is on her back or in the semi-reclined classic position that they put you in in a hospital bed, 
pushing tends to take a little longer and you it requires more force and exertion because you're on your back so you've basically closed the pelvic outlet more for the baby you're creating less space for the baby when you're on your back um so because of that you're exerting more force so you're more likely to tear um and the baby's also trying to work upwards against gravity so I find that that takes longer. So if you're, if you're standing, it's usually pretty fast. Um, that's why I encourage women not to be medicated because you can, you can say, well, I'm squatting now. That doesn't feel right. Let me get into hands and knees. And you can really just go into whatever position you want and your body's going to take you to where it's easiest mm -hmm. for the baby and the baby's position. Yeah. So yeah, you, you're, you try out every single position. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you just naturally like, Nope, that doesn't work. Nope. I need to move. Nope. 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 Um, but yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Your midwife did tell you as she was saying, push, 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 because yeah. considering that you had a really rapid labor and pushing seems like it was going quickly for you, I would have recommended that she actually just kind of hold, <laughs> hold your tissue, hold the baby's head and encourage you to really gently inch the baby out. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have encouraged significant dramatic pushes in the way that I might've was some, not that I do it, but if I were to do it, um, but yeah, really gentle, you know, and massaging with oil as the baby's inching out and really holding the baby from shooting out. Cause you know, tearing can be prevented yeah. if it's being monitored, if the, if the pushing is being monitored. I also appreciate midwives who just let women intuitively and instinctually push, you know, Women should be able to say, hey, can you come over here and help me push? I don't know what I'm doing. Right. But midwives really should be hands off and mm -hmm. say, all right, I'm going to see how this goes for her, see what I can do, and then step in if it's recruited. But this like push, 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 it's very much the epidural coaching because women on an epidural can typically not feel pushing. So they need three people, two people to be like, okay, now go, go, go. <laughs> and then the woman on an epidural is like, okay, I'm just going to bear down as much as I can, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And then they end up tearing and they really need a different style of support. Yeah. And I'm so glad I know that now. Um, and I, I, I do want to just touch, this is coming up for me a lot. The difference between a nurse midwife mm. and a home midwife. Now I know like nurse midwives could probably be home mid midwives, but you kind of know the distinction I'm making, right? It's yeah. traditionally trained nurses that become certified in midwifery, right? So they have that background of Western medicine and then they get trained, right? Versus someone who is starting out only in midwifery. Yeah. So there, you know, there's certified professional midwives who take the NARM exam, a board exam, um, there's lay midwives who don't do the NARM. Uh, there's certified nurse midwives who do midwifery training, but also have the nurse certification or license, I should say. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that can open like a birth center, for example, or those are the ones that typically work in hospitals. Mm -hmm. Their training is much more in emergent care where they are, you know, there's a nurse midwife here, for example, that worked at a hospital for 20 years and now has a home birth practice, but I see her practicing at home very differently than the typical home birth midwife. Um, you know, she's much, she's, she's really looking out for red flags. She's looking for something. All midwives are, should be looking out. They should be trying to scan the scene to make sure everything is safe. However, it's almost like this nurse midwife, like kind of looks 
for issues where there aren't any. And that's just her background. So she has a very high transfer rate. And, um, and I wouldn't say those transfers are all justified. <clears throat> but anyway, so yeah, there are differences. And, and I would encourage people that just because you're working with a midwife, it doesn't mean that they're going to be fully aligned with your more natural approach. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're going to be fully you know, practicing informed consent with you. Um, so I would really, I like CPM, certified professional midwives who do home birth. Um, there's also the traditional midwives, like in Utah, for example, um, they learn midwifery through um, osmosis, basically. They attend births and attend births and they learn more traditional methods. They're not regulated by the state because they don't hold any licensure or certification. They're really just wisdom trained midwives. So when you work with them, you also release them of any liability. They don't pay anything to the state. The state can't regulate them, but they're there holding space for you in a medical capacity. Mm, so there are many different types of midwives. And if you are working with a midwife in a hospital, she is most definitely a certified nurse midwife, a CNM. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the, really the take home there that I heard interwoven is responsibility is yours. Yes. Responsibility is always yours. There's no way that you can show up on the day of your birth and just expect your nurse midwife to do everything for you. There, there really is a lot of preparation. Um, there's going to be a lot of these beliefs that need to be shifted. There's going to be a lot of self-belief that needs to be cultivated. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that just through my own pregnancy, just reading a lot of books, um, pushed was one of them. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend reading these things when you're pregnant. They're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of, um, they shake you from your foundation, right. but it was right. so needed. I questioned everything from that point, but yeah thing is my husband though he's very Mm. much you know I'm I'm very natural holistic crunchy but he is very traditional conventional and so we've got these two polar opposites and we try to meet in the middle as much as possible but you know can you speak to the woman who is like yes I'm all in that's exactly how I want my birth to go I want the holistic support the I want my OB there but I want midwives there what have you um but they have a husband who is really fearful of his mm-hmm. wife and of his maybe first time baby and really kind of, you know, bought into this, oh, birth is dangerous. We need to make sure that you're in a place to handle everything. And what kind of conversation can she have with him so that he can do his own self-exploration? Because I know just telling him doesn't really work. <laughs> in anything? Um Yeah. So I get most, I mean, all of my classes are designed for couples or a woman and whoever her birth partner is, if she's not in a couple and men typically respond or whoever's in that masculine space typically responds pretty well to my class because there is a lot of practical support and evidence-based information. And so men can get behind this when they understand the what and the how and the why. But if a woman is like, you know, in her feminine, she's like, just because I want it, just because, and because it's the best thing. They're like, where is like, where is the evidence supporting this? I need to understand the beginning, middle and end. And so there is an opportunity for the most closed off conventional man 
to be opened up and to blossom into this new awareness and understanding. But you have to, as the woman, have to provide the opportunity for him to do that. And so this class, for example, that I teach, men are always like, yeah, I'm, I'm always like, okay, so why is everyone here? Like, why are you guys here? You know, and men always say, well, I'm just here to support my wife. She wanted me to take the class and I'm doing whatever I can to support her, whatever she wants. But I could tell they're pretty reserved. And after just going through the first class where I explain conventional birthing system versus an empowered birthing approach, already they start to see, oh, like, I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to go into a hospital room and like have someone else dictate my wife's experience. Like they, they just need to understand that. And if by the end of the training and the class and the understanding, they still feel like they want to go to the hospital. Now they have a deeper understanding of how to advocate for their wife and how to hold space and create a safe container for her. So my recommendation is for women to, you know, rather than like dig heels in and be like, he never listens. He doesn't understand. Uh, when is he going to see? It's like, well, create an opportunity, invite him in. You know, you know, you do know better about your body. That's like not, there's no question about that, but how are you going to invite him in to see what you see? How are you going to set up your husband for success? Cause when we, when we make demands of our husband our partner, and we don't set him up for success by giving him opportunities to learn. We just simply set him up for failure and that's it. So I can, I've, I've gotten the most conventional man, trust me to, to shift perspective. It's what I, I pride myself in doing this. Um, because, because what I like to do is I like to give them purpose and value in this experience when they see how valuable they are in protecting the family, when they buy in to this empowerment and this approach, they can soar. But when they don't see how valuable they are and how essential they are for this, they're just gonna stick to their old beliefs. That's huge. Wow, you, yeah, you are that bridge to self-discovery for them and really, yeah, giving them a purpose. Um, and I think like every, every husband wants to advocate for his wife. Like that's why they're in the hospital. He wants to make sure he is safe. Yeah. They are safe. Everyone's safe. You're right. Uh, yeah. That's when you, why they want to go there. Yeah. Yeah. And when you give them the full picture and then you almost hand over this sordid shield and say, okay, it's on you now, you know, everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, what your, your, your wife wants, you know, what's best for the baby. Um, you know, you'll, you may be there in person. Otherwise you have this, this course, which I want to get to here in a second. Um, but talk to me about like this masculine versus feminine energy, because this Mm -hmm. isn't talked about a lot. So you're endowing the man with his masculine energy to hold that space. What does this allow the woman to be able to do? Right. So the woman is like the Oracle, like the woman knows the truth. We know what is true. And in this partnership, we give the man the opportunity, we give him all the information and then the masculine gets to decide how it's done, right? How it's carried out and how to take it forward, how to use the the sword and the shield out in the world. But they need to know that we're the ones with the source of truth. So we both win. We're both decision makers and we both win, but we have to be clear in how it's delegated and how it's sourced. So when a man is fully in that confident masculine and he has the tools to carry the family forward, the woman can go into full surrender and she can feel safe. 
right? So when a woman is the one throughout the pregnancy, who's like, okay, I made the appointment. I did the plans. I did the things. And now we're doing that. And the guy is the one who's like go, being polarized into his feminine where he's like, oh, I'm along for the ride. You know, that's where there's this imbalance. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually, <laughs> it's rampant in most dynamics outside of the birth context, you know, where women are being polarized into the masculine just by society and, and, and by these men who are unfortunately in a low frequency masculine, yeah. you know, and that comes from their parenting and their whole thing and not knowing how to make their own decisions and not feeling like they have direction in the world. And so they you know, all these women are now going in, you know, they're being mother, but they're also being the ones who lead the direction of the family. So there's a deep imbalance already inherently socially. So in this specific case that we're talking about, um, I would invite women to set, to, to bring all that they want for this and to set up their man for success mm-hmm. saying, we're taking this class, you know, I want to do this together. This is our thing. This is our weekly date. This is what we're going to do. These are all of the things that I want. And if after this class, you still feel really compelled to do this and this and this, I will be open to listening, but I need you to take this. And sometimes men are like, well, we're circumcising, you know, the woman's like, well, I don't really feel like I want to do that. You know, this is just an example. And the man says, well, I'm circumcised and my son's not going to look like, you know, X, Y, Z. It's because I'm circumcised. And she'll say, well, and I, and women call me and they're crying and they're like, what do I do? You know? And I'm like, well, just give him some information. Just Mm -hmm. have him read it over when he can provide you with his own information that circumcision is actually healthier. It's more beneficial then you guys are on an even playing field. But if he's just simply digging his heels in and saying, because I am, it's obviously coming from ego and vanity and fear and ignorance. So when both people can bring evidence to the table, you can have a real conversation. But when one person's just digging in and being stubborn, it's, you're not setting anyone up for success or for progress forward. Right. It's, it's those conditioned beliefs that are just holding so strong. It's hard to break free from conditioned beliefs. It is. It's earth shattering. Sometimes like when, even when we have like discussions about vaccines, like I don't even, I just present them. Like, let's just look at the ingredients together. Mm-hmm. Let's just look at the process of circumcision together. Right. And once you are exposed to the truth, then we can have a very informed conversation yeah but you can't have an informed conversation just coming from well it's how it's always done because well, I said everyone so. does it right, right. yeah exactly yeah. that's exactly it yeah. yeah and then just taking it one step further like during the birth process how to feel safe in that situation you want to know that your husband will advocate that birth plan for you yeah when something is when something is being suggested um, I just want to touch real quick and then we'll wrap up on that story. You, I heard you on that other podcast about the, the internal fetal monitor, mm. right. With the husband, you know, really saying, oh yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And you're like, <clears throat> outside yeah. the hallway real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, so, yeah. Tea time. Um, Tea time. <laughs> so basically, yeah, I was at, so I was at a birth twin birth in the hospital and they hadn't taken a class of any kind. It was their second pregnancy. And so they were like, this isn't our first rodeo. We don't need to take the class. Mm. I don't care if it's your second rodeo. You really should take a birth class because every birth is different. You've grown as people. You still need to get refresher and education, especially if you're birthing in the hospital, especially. So anyway, the nurse came in to listen to the baby's heart tones. 
she couldn't get the heart tones for the second baby, baby B. And so she said, look, we just want to, she said to the couple, she said, look, I can't get heart tones on baby B. Uh, it's, he's not cooperating, right? As if the baby's doing it on purpose. He's not cooperating. So I want to do an internal fetal monitor. And they said, okay. And I was like, what? So then that's when I texted the husband and I was like, meet me outside. We need to talk, tell the nurse you're going to hold off. I need to show you what she just presented because you didn't even ask her to explain what she just said. So I showed him photos of an internal fetal monitor and I explained what it is. And it's basically a catheter that goes in. So they break your bag of waters, they insert a catheter into the amniotic fluid, and then a secondary cord with an electrode at the end is screwed into the baby's scalp. Mm. So this is how they get the heart tones of the baby is through the head and through this electrode. And then they're getting the contractions through the catheter that's in the water. And they're reading, you know, and so when I explained this to him, he's like, this is barbaric. How could she suggest it? And I was like, well, how could you have said yes without knowing <laughs> what you were going to get to? I didn't say that, but um, I said, so this is your opportunity to go out there and explain to her that you are declining this procedure and that you are asking her or requiring her, demanding of her that she continue to use the external monitor she, she can, she could use a stethoscope if she wanted to <laughs> just find the baby's heart tones from the outside. And you're not leaving this room until you do, but the nurse has 10 other people she's taking care of. Cause that's how hospitals are. So she doesn't have time to sit there and really go through with the stethoscope and listen manually to the baby's heart tones. But that's what he went out there and asked her to do. And in that moment, he felt very empowered. Yeah. And that's when he realized, oh, I need to step it up. I, I'm, I'm kind of being passive in the birth room and my wife is working really hard over there laboring and I really need to step it up and advocate for her and not just say yes to whatever the, the medical team says. That's right, guys. Turn off the Netflix, get up off the couch, Take a class. Be, there, be there for your wife so she can be fully in her feminine, um, you know, wow. an amazing epic birth. So Oh, wow. This was just an incredible podcast. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how um, listeners can find you and then your epic birth class that everyone under the sun should be <laughs> in you. right now. <laughs> oh my God, you're too kind. Um, yeah. So you can find me on Instagram, um, Ayla Cuenca Birth, and I'm also on Telegram. And I post frequently um, on my website, I have a blog. So just these topics we were discussing today, I'll just write little blur, you know, blurbs on that. Um, and I'll list different resources that you can go to to do more research. Um, how people research during pregnancy is so important. So um, avoiding Google, avoiding Facebook. <laughs> You know, uh, so I, I avoid really your friends and family. <laughs> avoid friends and family and movies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how you can find me. And the birth class that I offer is called Uncovering Birth. It's seven weeks. Um, right now, it's still live. So we meet live on Zoom every week when you're signed up. Um, but soon it'll be recorded and you can just purchase it and do it um, at your own pace and your own time um, from the comfort of your home. And, you know, if you're with a partner and you have different schedules, this is a great opportunity for you guys to kind of do it separately if you can't do it together. Um, and really what I focus on is informed consent, understanding what's happening with your body, understanding how to really maximize this experience so that you walk away from the birth, um, into postpartum feeling really positive, really empowered and saying, I want to do that again. Oh, amazing. Um, and also understanding that plans change, 
right? Maybe your birth plan changes in the moment and that's okay too. And how do we remain resilient even when things change, even in the face of a C-section? How do we remain resilient and still stay empowered? Such important skills and such important beliefs to be instilled because motherhood, postpartum motherhood, it's, you know, it's, it can just be a slippery slope of outsourcing your power to your children, to your health. And this is kind of the pivotal point, in my opinion, of really taking that back. So thank you so much, Ayla. And I know for our holistic fertility method, um, ladies and alumni, we have a special little, um, special little segue to jump into her course. So I'll be sending you guys more information about that. But um, thank you, Ayla, so much. And we will definitely be speaking soon, I'm sure. Yes, thank you. Have a beautiful day. Bye.